Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. We're very excited to have Dr. Anthony Marker in the studio with us here on Radio Boise. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. This month, we're talking about change and change in the valley in the broad sense. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few different issues related to the development that's going on, uh, the people that are moving here, some cultural stuff that's going on. And um, we're very excited to kick it off with uh, Dr. Marker to talk about how people in general deal with change in their daily lives and as a society in the broader sense. And happy to have Laura in the studio with us here. Hello. Always trying to be shy and being the producer behind the <laughs> scenes, but uh, getting her in front of the mic today. So that's exciting. And we're just going to have a conversation with you and we're looking forward to it. So tell us a little bit about your research around change. And I know you've done a lot of, around green building and how green building uh, gets adopted in the marketplace. But let's start with your broader research around change and, and what you've what kind of factors you've been looking at. I started... Um my interest in, in change actually began when I was a graduate student at Indiana University. Uh, I, I um, became interested not only in what the changes were, but why so many people resisted them. Uh, why it was so difficult to, to get what seems on the outside to be a really simple, a pretty obvious change to get it adopted. And that at that point, I really started to dive into, well, let's look at what can we do to help people change. And, and, and I, I bring that up, uh, I use the word help uh, intentionally because often we think, well, we're gonna make people change. And in, in, and in fact, it uh, really turns out that we're better off when we try and facilitate change, when we try and get people to come along with us as opposed to pulling them behind us in chains. So creatures of habit we are, and um, a lot of those habits maybe aren't the direction we want things to go. Um, in, in your research, uh, human performance improvement is uh, a part of, uh, part of the, the lexicon that you dive into. Um, tell us about some of the, the factors in terms of um, you know, how, how people get stuck in their habits. Um, I know we're looking at you know, traffic issues in the valley and things like that. Um, what is it that helps us move out of those habits? Are there incentives? Are there behavioral things we can do that really help us inch people closer towards the change we want to see? Well, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, there are a, a number of factors that every change has. Um, is it simple? You know, simpler changes are more adoptable uh, by people. Um, is it close to what they were doing before? Um, what is its difficulty? How, what sort of social impact does a change have on the people who, who have to make that change? But then there are other, a couple other things. Um, one is, uh, and, and academically we like to call it cognitive load. How much do you have to think in order to do something? Well, we get into our routines and, uh, uh, for instance, the way we drive to work. We drive to work the same way every day, most of us. 
uh, except for a few changes when we're forced to change. But because we do the same thing the same way all the time, we don't devote a lot of attention to how we do it. We can put a little bit on autopilot. That's very efficient for us, and we need some of those efficiencies. If we had to think about every task every day as if it were something new, we'd spend a lot of mental energy doing that. Uh, so we like to keep our cognitive load down. We like to keep, make things simple, keep it easy for us. So that's one reason that people, uh, even if it's a good change, quote-unquote good, um, then um, we can resist it because it pulls us out of our comfort, comfort zone and makes it a little bit tougher for us. And the other is um, many changes, uh, quite frankly, make us feel stupid. Uh, and we're not stupid, um, but because it, it changes the patterns, it changes the signposts. Uh, if, if you think um, you're trying to get somewhere and someone changed all the street signs, it would make it dip more difficult. And so um, we don't like to feel stupid. We don't feel that we're stupid. But when, for instance, we come across a piece of new software that we're not used to, for instance, somebody changes your operating system on your phone or your computer, all of a sudden you can't find how you do a, a simple task that you had no problem doing before, that can make you feel dumb even though you're not dumb. And so people don't like to feel that. I know I don't like to feel uh, that way. So a couple of things, that, that cognitive load, how much mental effort it takes to do something, and then just making me feel inadequate for some reason. So you're talking about that cognitive load. Mm -hmm. Is it beneficial then to consciously try to continuously change you're saying you know we want to build in efficiencies and routines to lower that cognitive load but if you're in such a routine that everything is always the same and you're kind of blindsided when a change happens is there a is there a goal or a desire to actually you know maybe take a different route to work every once in a while just to let you know what sure. i mean is there you want to almost flex that muscle to be prepared for when you are hit with a change? Sure. I mean, if you think about uh, the end goals of I want to be more creative or I want to be more mindful, you know, in the moment and present, then change, uh, small changes, and sometimes big changes, can be really beneficial because it, it, it forces you to actually engage with your environment. You have to think about your environment. Well, that's pretty conducive to either staying with what you're doing, paying attention to what's going on around you. If you come to a detour on your normal route to work, then you have to take some side straights, all of a sudden your brain engages and you start to pay attention. Well, well what's the house on the corner? How am I gonna get home? That sort of thing. Uh, and if you're forced to think about a problem in a new way, then you can come up with different kinds of solutions than you've had in the past. It's easy to get in a rut, and, and uh, breaking you out of those patterns is one way of doing it. So related to the cognitive load aspect of it, how much is there a, is there a fear factor that's also related on the flip side of that? We don't like to feel dumb or, or like we've been doing things wrong, but does fear also play into this hesitant to, hesitance to change? Sure. There's a we have a term for this. Some, uh, some change agents have a term for this, and it's called horribleizing. And that <laughs> what that means is if you don't have the information you need, we typically fill in the gaps in the in information with all the bad stuff. And there was a great story that, that we sometimes tell in change seminars about this young boy. His parents were divorced. One lived in New York. One li lived in Los Angeles. 
And for years, the boys were, was going back and forth, visiting both parents. And one year, um, uh, the boy was having real problems, lots of anxiety. As the day got closer to, to go back, it was uh, showing real uh, fear. And um, it turned out that this, in this case, the boy had to change planes. And the parents were like, well, no, you know, somebody's going to, uh, we're going to make this very easy. It's, it's not, it's not going to be a problem. Uh, and still the boy uh, was having uh, major issues. Well, and they finally sat down and said, well, what's going on here? He said, well, I'm afraid when I change planes that when I step from the wing of one plane to the wing of the other plane, <laughs> I'm going to fall off. <laughs> well, it's, there was information there that could certainly have eased, but he didn't know. And so what did he fill in that gap with? He does what we all do. We fill in those gaps with what we imagine might happen. And, and that's usually not the easy stuff. We fill in with the stuff that causes anxiety. We're all the same when it comes to that. So if we've got a change and we don't know what's coming up, we tend to fill it in with the stuff that's a little scary. Horribleizing. Horribleizing. Yeah. Good term. A, yeah. <laughs> um, so going back to how you were saying somebody who wants to implement a change should be there to assist rather than kind of direct a change, how, how can somebody ease the, ch the process of changing for somebody that they're telling needs to be an adopter of a change? Well, there are, I guess there are a couple kinds of changes. One, um, we tend to look at changes either top-down or bottom or middle or bottom-up bottom up, uh, in the direction it's being driven. Uh, top-down changes are a CEO or a manager will say, these are the kinds of changes I want. I want you to do this throughout my organization. That's being driven from the top uh, onto the users. The other is you've sort of got these grassroots types of changes, and people will say, yeah, we collectively think that we want to change. Well, the two approaches are quite different. Um, one tends to be more directive, and one tends to be more organic, uh, although it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, uh, in my experience, you're a lot better off if you're trying to do both at the same time. So if you can get um, the management structure, leadership structure, and that hierarchy bought into the change at the same time as you're getting people in the organization to d ask for and desire and buy into the change, then you're much better off. That's, it, it sort of comes down to the fact that people don't like having change done to them mm -hmm. people are much more open to change that's done with them and too many times uh, i've heard managers say listen they just have to do it well sometimes they do um, but if you want people to change and you don't want to take i'll say this uh, in in sort of an abstract way you don't want casualties along the way. You don't want people leaving the organization or dropping off in productivity, not literal casual casualties. <laughs> then, um, then you need to help them find and bring them on board. It's uh, the, the changes that seem to have the most problem are when somebody from the top comes in, they create a change, it's sort of done behind closed doors, and then they drop it unexpectedly into the laps of the people who actually have to do it. No warning, no awareness, no buildup, 
and now all of a sudden they're expected to be at the same place that the managers were. Well, the managers may have spent months or even years coming up with this. They're on board. Uh, they, but now we're expecting the the uh, adopters, the users of of the change, to actually have to catch up really quickly, and it doesn't. It often doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So, what kind of tools can be given? I mean, do you you bring in buy-in from from you know if it is a top-down from people in all different divisions? Do you? I mean, what kind of resources can you do to to ease that? Because it seems like change often does feel like, oh my gosh, this just happened to me. But if we're there to kind of lessen that boom, what can you do to help the adopters? Any well, any t- sort of emotional adjustment, and a change is an emotional adjustment for most people. Mm. Uh, people tend to go through stages. So, for instance, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with the stages of grief mm-hmm. that we go through when we mm-hmm. lose a loved one. Change is not that different in some <laughs> ways. Wow. Um, uh, people go through stages in, in accepting change, and each of those stages has... Um, a particular strategy that works for that stage. So they might go through awareness where they've never been aware, they didn't even know the change was coming, and now all of a sudden they're aware of it. Then they might be curious, well, what does this mean for me? Uh, How is that gonna play out? How is that gonna change my daily life? Then a third stage might be mental tryout. Well, thinking, well, how would I do that? What, What does that look like? Um, and the next stage might be physical tryout, where they're actually going to give it a give it a run in their environment and see how it works. And then finally, they may uh, may choose to adopt it. The problem is that we typically what we find is uh, it's pretty common to start uh, with a strategy to help those people that isn't appropriate to their change. So when they're first becoming aware of that change, they don't need a a data dump of a whole bunch of information at once. What they need are small snippets, advertising types of things that say, here's what's coming, just be aware of it. We're gonna be talking about this and giving you more information, just wanted to let you know. Then once they're aware of the change that's coming, they, then when they're curious, now they might want more information. Well, what, what does this look like? What are the boundaries? Fill in the pictures, you know, connect the dots for me. Then when they're trying to do a mental tryout, they might say, well, show me how it works. You know, give me a demonstration. And uh, what you can see in each of these cases is that for each stage that somebody goes through, there's a very particular way that you can go about helping people get through that stage. If you mismatch that stage with that strategy, you've really missed an opportunity to bring people along. And what tends to happen is people are at awareness and somebody will throw them into training and training is really something that happens toward the end. Mm. And people aren't ready for the training so they don't get it because they're still trying to to wrap their arms around what it's gonna mean for them, Mm -hmm. let alone how they're gonna do it. Very interesting. I think now's a good time to take a break. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Anthony Marker, professor at Boise State University. I'm your co-host, Charlie Woodruff, and Laura Matthews is joining us in the studio today. So thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back after a short break.
Welcome back to Building a Greener Idaho here on Radio Boise. I'm your co-host, Charlie Woodruff. I'm here in the studio with my fellow co-host, Laura Matthews, who's now behind the mic with us, finally. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, our guest, Dr. Anthony Marker from Boise State University. And we're talking about change, how people resist it, how we try to sell it. Um, organizational, personal, all of those things. So welcome back to the show. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Marker. Thank you. Um, I want to bring it back to uh, uh, what is a recent example and what I think we'll dive into this month in some of our shows relating to urban change and urban growth. And it was something you said about control and not having control when change is either forced upon us or we don't have influence over that kind of change. That can be a difficult thing to cope with. Um, So one example uh, recently, you know, look, at neighborhood forums, the dialogue that goes on about density and neighborhoods changing and whether high density, whether it's mixed-use apartments or commercial density, there's a lot of resistance to that type of change. And so I'm wondering, how do you see that playing out with the idea that perhaps density might be a good thing in the future? Well, top-down driven change or externally driven change um, is an interesting subject. We when organizations say, listen, uh, we need to make this change, even we need to make this change because our organization won't survive, we don't have any, don't have any choice, uh, the way that they sell those changes is typically listing all the benefits that the organization, in this case the city, would get. Uh, it would um, reduce the need for certain services and make things more efficient, reduce costs in certain areas, uh, and those are great. But if you were to ask the people in the neighborhood um, why they don't want the change, why they would resist the change, then the changes that they're going to give are typically very personal and don't have to do with what the city's thinking about or the organization's thinking about. They're thinking, well, well, what's it going to do to my parking? Uh, How many more people are going to be in the neighborhood? Am I going to have any control over who, how the streets are laid out or who's going to be living in the neighborhood with me? It's those personal fears that tend to get in the way. But when we sell change, again, we tend to do it from the from the top-down point of view and saying, oh, this is going to be great for everybody. Until you overcome those individual factors that uh, people really worry about on an individual basis, then it's really difficult for them to get even see or consider those organizational benefits. Yeah. And it's not only that you know, if you want to sell a change that you can personalize it to where, oh, this is going to benefit you in X, Y, Z way. But you also say that even just acknowledging the inconveniences may help somebody adapt because they're at least that personal awareness has been addressed in the change. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, if if you're proposing a change and there are some obvious inconveniences for the people who actually have to make that change happen, the people in a neighborhood, for instance, if you don't mention an obvious problem, they're going to think they don't care. They haven't thought about this. They haven't thought it through. They don't know what the impact is going to be on me. If you can say, listen, we're aware that there are these these inconveniences, ABC, uh, lack of parking, um, a little more congestion, uh, and here's how we're going to deal with those. Here's how we're going to alleviate and address some of those. You can really head off a lot of that horribleizing we talked about. 
and cut off some of some of the um, initial resistance. You still certainly likely run into resistance, but you should be able to head it off somewhat. And then, if you again, if you try and think ahead to what some of the other problems might be and have answers prepared for those, you're in a much better position to say, well, here's what we think about um, doing for that kind of change. Uh, in response in real time, as opposed to saying, you know, let me go back and think about that. So thinking about what the unintended consequences of a change might have on on the population that's concerned ahead of time and having responses uh, is a good way to, to have a, an initial conversation. How, uh, let me ask you this, does, is dialogue a good tool let's say like a like a community dialogue or dialogue on public on a community radio perhaps or a forum in a neighborhood or even a maybe a symposium at a business that they hold and bring bring stakeholders together or, or their employees together um, early on months or years in advance of a potential change does that does that kind of soften the change? Does that help people sort of start to wrap their head around what kind of uh, things might be changing and and um, is that effective or an, a good tool to use? Sure. I mean, it, it comes back to the, the principle of people are more willing to do change that is done with them than to them. Okay. Uh, and to the extent that people feel involved, they feel um, like they're part of the process. They Their views have been taken into consideration when making the changes. And it's not just about listening. It's about listening and acting. So if you were to have a bunch of... Um, uh, community events where people could come and voice their concerns and their fears and their desires around a particular change, that's great. But if you then go away and don't do anything with those ideas, then now you haven't really gained anything from those dialogues. If you then take the information that those people said, you know, I'm really worried about this, how are we going to deal with it? And then you come back with a plan for dealing with it, then at least they know they've been heard not only that they've been given the opportunity, but that they've actually been heard, that can bring people a long way toward accepting a change because now it's not in the abstract and now it's been demonstrated that they have a voice. You know, in those forums, in public forums and things like that, there's sometimes people that are just against whatever is being proposed. They're really just automatically countering every change that's being proposed how do you deal with that kind of period i mean do you listen to those people do you do you dig in with them and try and figure out where they're coming from like can you explain that kind of category of person sure i mean uh, as an academic we've got labels for everything um in the in the past um these people used to be labeled as laggards which is a really negative connotation we tend to to refer to these people as traditionalists. They're, they like the way things are, and that's not bad. Um, and in fact, uh, if you don't have some people who are really cautious about changes, it's easy to dive into a change too quickly that might have some serious drawbacks. So these people often have really uh, useful information. If we go to someone who is really resistant to a change really early in the process and say, what are your concerns? What would make this more palatable to you? Uh, how might, you know, what would get you on board with this change, then um, you can often get 
information before you address the norm, you know, the, the larger population that can head off some of their concerns. So take those, those people are, uh, are a real wealth of information, can provide a real wealth of information uh, that would otherwise be unavailable and, and might even bring up some, some legitimate points about maybe this change isn't the best idea. They may have thought about something that uh, you hadn't considered or that may either send you a diff- down a different road or or ask you to, hey, maybe we need to take a second look at this. So rather than viewing those people as just obstructing something, you really find value in them. They're going to pinpoint things that you might not have on your radar. Sure. All sorts of people you need to get on board. You need to get sponsors, people who have the authority and the responsibility and the resources. You need to get them on board. There are people whose opinions other people trust, and they might not necessarily be the people that you would think. Uh, often they're very quiet, but when if those people, when they do speak, people tend to listen to them. Uh, but also these um, people who are resistant, you need to really re- listen to them too, because those voices are important as well. I'm going to take us back out to kind of the the really um, high level here in terms of our society and what's going on right now. Um, you know, we see a lot of polarization um, in the way that we interact with each other and our, our positions politically and, and our, our positions on, you know, this or that, the other topic. Um, how much of that is due to our busy lives, um, you know, our, our daily habits that we're in, sort of the, the universe that we really uh, kind of live in, and somewhat perhaps the isolation that that puts us in as a community. We're talking about having dialogue um, when a lot of us really don't have time. We're busy at work. We have kids to take care of, get them here, get them there, you know, thinking about running around town, just getting kids Mm -hmm. to soccer practices and and all of that. We don't really have time to have the dialogue as a community as as we might once have. Um, So how much does that isolation uh, lead into uh, creating barriers to change as a, as a community and and maybe that lack of, of, of community cohesiveness. Yeah, great question. I, uh, if you look at an individual's ability to change, we sort of, we use the um, analogy of a person being a sponge. You can pour a little bit of water on that sponge, and the sponge absorbs it. We put a little bit more, and it absorbs it. A little bit more, it absorbs it. But at some point, that sponge is saturated. Well, in in our terms, we call that change load. A person can absorb so much change, after a while, they need to have a, a dehydration uh, period where where they can uh, move on. Now, our society has reached the point where we're constantly pouring water on the sponge over and over, this change, that change, every time we're, we're not giving people time to recover from change. And so it can make, it can make a pretty big difference. We, um, and particularly since in, in our society it seems to be so polarized, we, we tend to, to drift toward sources of information that agree with what we want because, again, it makes us feel comfortable. Uh, and we're not having those dialogues across, those difficult, hard conversations uh, across communities. So to the extent that we can set up mechanisms that bring people together in a safe space to have those difficult conversations about this is going to be inconvenience for you but a benefit for me and the other way around we can then start to make some progress but but if we live in these silos where we're really only considering our own group of people and the people who agree with us it makes it really difficult to have conversations and dialogue with with people who have 
different feelings and opinions. So how do we let that sponge dry out a little bit? Um, <laughs> is it vacation? Do we all just uh, need a if long I could vacation? Can, I don't know if I could vacation figure out that politics, answer. Yes. <laughs> can we put yeah, turn politics on Turn off hold? the news. That might be a, that might be a great idea. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't have I don't have an easy answer for that one. I I wish I did. Um, I think that actually turning down the noise and turning down the stimulus is a real option for it. Mm. Um, if I've I've gone uh, at certain points in my life and turned off all information for a week, and it is amazing how just that created space of silence can regenerate you now that's really hard but if you can say i'm only going to check my email once a day i'm going to do it at this time every day Uh, i'm only going to listen to the news once Uh, i'm not going to keep it on in the background you can still live a quote-unquote normal life uh, (laughs) and and reduce the noise in such a way that it's manageable but not overwhelming Mm. Very interesting. I think uh, you might be making a case for for daily meditation as well. (laughs) I might be making a case for daily meditation as well. (laughs) Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, We're getting close to time, actually, and um, I think we could talk for hours um, with Dr. Marker here. Fascinating subjects. Any uh, final thoughts on your end, Laura? I think it's fascinating. It really just spills over into every part of your existence, having to deal with change and it's going to be a good uh, series, I think, that we have coming up. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Thank you for course. having me. tuning in to Building a Greener Idaho. Keep the conversation going on social media and at buildingagreeneridaho.org. And join us Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening.